I can't allow myself to be satisfied here, which is I think where people hit that three month or six month thing and start to turn it back around, yes. which I've done in my life. Um, you know, what I need uh, and what I've learned working with you in part and what that day one focus is for me is that, you know, I'm a guy who needs to constantly have goals and I need mm. to be you know, rowing towards something. I, I don't think I'm a guy who can just maintain without slipping. Um, yeah. So for me, it's about, okay, what's the next goal? And let me get obsessive and really focused on that goal because I'm just not good at just kind of maintaining. I, I, I need to They say that getting in shape is hard, but no one told you about the struggle. It's time for you to get healthy, but business and family make life complicated. Discover all the high-performance secrets that founders and busy entrepreneurs use to ensure they stay fit and lean, no matter how busy they get. This podcast is a reminder to use those secrets, which make getting in shape easy and stress-free, while doing it in a way that fits your busy lifestyle. And ultimately, this will make you a better performer at work and home. You're listening to The High Performance Founder with your host, Dan Go. Hey, what's up? It is Dan, and I can't wait to share with you this interview I did with the CEO of the Game Show Network. Uh, his name is Mark Feldman, and uh, he is, to me, the epitome of high performance. He, he literally is running a, a multi-billion dollar company while uh, during that whole time, he has gotten himself into his best shape at the same time. It's almost unheard of. And the thing about Mark is he has a very unique philosophy when it comes to business. He has a very unique performance philosophy when it comes to his body. And I won't spoil things for you. I'll let the kind of interview play out. And um, the one thing I will say, and I just want to, uh, I guess you say, warn you a little bit is that I did this interview while I was outside. So uh, you may hear running water in the background. You may hear uh, some beeping from cars and whatnot. Uh, the, the audio or the microphone I used and the microphone he used is all good. It's great. But you may just hear some like outside background noise. So I just want to prepare you for that fact. And I can't wait to share this amazing interview I just did with Mark Feldman, CEO of the Game Show Network. And uh, yeah, let's not wait. Let's get right to it. We're going to be starting this interview, and I just want to say welcome, my friend. We have been working together for a very, very, uh, for a good, significant, long time. I would say, like you know, around like six months. Uh, you and I have been uh, getting after it. And one of the things that strikes me is uh, in regards to you. And if it, if anyone doesn't know, um, I'm talking with Mark Feldman. He is the CEO of the Game Show Network, uh, very accomplished uh, businessman. He used to be the COO of the E! News Network, or is it Entertainment News Network, right? The E! E! e Network. Entertainment Television. E! Entertainment Television. And the thing that strikes me about Mark is, is the fact that he is one of the hardest workers that I have ever worked with, and I'm not saying just within a physical context, I'm saying within a business context. He is literally working anywhere between 12 
sometimes like 16 hours a day uh, because you're not only dealing with uh, people on the East Coast, you're also dealing with uh, with audiences in Israel, in India, and almost pretty much across the world. So you strike me as someone who is almost like the epitome of a high performer, right? Of someone that not only takes care of his business in a very, very efficient, very uh, successful way, but also someone that takes care of his family. But more importantly, you take care of your health and you've, you've actually done some incredible things for your health over the course of six months. So if you hear any banging in the background, it's uh, my daughter who's just looking at me doing this interview. She's like, get me in this right now. Well, so, okay. the father of three daughters myself who uh, are all quite a bit older than, than yours, I will say yeah. that gives me jealousy because I, I miss the days of them banging on the door to get closer to me. Yeah, man. I just, you know what? I'm going to try to like hold on to this, this feeling as much as possible. So I wanted to ask you, Mark, actually, uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your history, uh, and also what you do, uh, because I'm very impressed, especially with uh, with kind of the things that you do on a regular basis. So, uh, so please. So, uh, I don't know how one describes oneself uh, in very uh, short order, but mm. so I come from, um, originally I was born in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I come from an incredibly traditional Jewish immigrant background. Um, and the reason I say that uh, is only because it, it says a lot about sort of my my health history um, and uh, sort of what I was acculturated to in that regard, which is which is not great um, in, in a lot of ways. Very very small family, you know. We emigrated here from uh, Russia and Poland uh, after World War One and to escape World War Two. Like a lot of Jewish families, a very small family because most people didn't make it make it over. And if you looked at my DNA, which we have, or at least my, my wife and I have, it's bizarrely inbred. I'm <laughs> 99.7% one thing, which is oh, wow. described as Ashkenazi Jew, which, which tells you there's very little diversity in my, in my background and my genetics, you know, are very strong pattern. Contrast with my wife, who you also know, you know, and hers is like this rainbow <laughs> history of, of world travels. But mine is just a bunch of people who only, you know, live and die in one town and marry within that neighborhood and within that culture and all that. Um, and the culture I come from is one where, you know, some things that are really terrific are highly valued. And I was raised with this, which is, you know, education and hard work, uh, social justice and doing good. You know, I come from a family of where, you know, there's there's no accumulation of wealth. If, if you have an extra dollar uh, or shekel we might say to spend <laughs> you know you 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 give it to um a good works or the opera or whatever so there's this you know serious educational element there's this really you know almost i would say leaning towards socialist kind of kind of element of social justice and equality and civil rights and all that there's uh culture i call them the culture vultures because we're raised on you know all learning musical instruments and and study our whole lives and all that and that's all great Unfortunately, it's also attached to a culture of incredibly bad health habits, right? Where there's, you know, my growing up was everyone, you get up and everyone gets up in the morning and they empty the refrigerator onto the table. Everyone sits there for hours. Uh, we call it noshing, which is Yiddish for snacking. And everyone's smoking. And then you put everything away so you can go to breakfast. 
and you have breakfast and then you come back and you empty the fridge out again and everyone nauseous and all this is why you're talking and reflecting or whatever but um not not a real healthy lifestyle and and not surprisingly everyone kind of dies very young particularly the men in my family on both sides of my family and pretty much everyone's more with the obese uh, we moved out to California when my father, who's in the military, was was stationed uh, in California and and stayed in California. And I've uh, my whole life kind of been um, pushing against that tide a little bit, not as well as I as I would have liked. But rather than taking a bunch of pride in the the you know really good education and good schools and academic success and you know all the other hard work, discipline, other things that, you know, I was raised to to do and have been fortunate enough to experience in my life. I actually kind of came up, my mind has always been focused on, yeah, but I wish I could do what those football players do. I wish I could do what those like, you know, those really athletic people do. And and I've had a, a fascination with all the things that I didn't know how to do and, and didn't have success at. And so I've done, you know, I've been sort of an armchair athlete my my whole life, but one that was always overweight. Um, and one that did a lot more exercising than training. Mm. And you would, I think, you know, very much understand that, mm. that distinction. Uh, one is just sort of like, you know, spinning your wheels, <laughs> exercising, training is actually moving towards a, towards a goal, you know, with a purpose. Anyway, uh, so personally, you know, ended up meeting my wife a little later. We got three wonderful daughters, all of whom are, are doing terrific, um, have lived in the same home in, in lovely Santa Monica now for, for 20 some years. So, so that's, you know, sort of the personal um, story. And I should say attached to that, you know, both of my parents passed uh, long ago, uh, largely related to the the fact that there's such an unhealthy lifestyle in my, in my household. Uh, On a professional basis, I, uh, everyone in my family, the only acceptable professions are uh, medicine or social work. Although there's one other acceptable profession, which my father always pushed me towards, which was to be a rabbi. And uh, I, I could not have had less interest in that. <laughs> but, uh, that, that was always his, his dream and, and where he was trying to direct me. Anyway, I, I went against the tide there as well. Um, while everyone else in my, my, my world is devoted to doing good things for people in medicine or in uh, social work, I, I became a lawyer. And uh, my first job out of law school was working for a, a firm, a small firm with really great attorneys. Uh, and we represented these people like you, these amazing entrepreneurs, people who were like starting and growing these fantastic businesses, a lot of names you would, you would recognize. And while I was doing very, very well at the law firm, I was incredibly jealous of what those folks were doing. I thought, <laughs> you know, being a really successful lawyer means becoming a really good salesman because you're bringing in clients, not personally particularly interested in that or good at it. But I saw these people growing businesses and doing deals and growing their workforces and and kind of like impacting people's lives by creating a a growing business that could give people opportunities and careers and the rest of it. And that all seemed a lot more interesting to me than sort of being a mercenary and just being the one who worked on their deals for them. So I, I practiced for about four or five years, but spent the last year or two really working hard to find my way into something else. So I was in Southern California in the 90s, uh, and I figured there were two real growth industries. One was high tech, and the other was entertainment. 
uh, I figured I'm not nearly smart enough to do anything in high tech. Uh, and maybe I don't have to be that smart to do something in entertainment. So <laughs> entertainment. Uh, talked my way into a job at E Entertainment Television when it was a tiny, tiny money losing little place, uh, walked away from everything. And that's when I took, you know, sort of the big risk. I cut my salary more than in half, walked away from a guaranteed million dollar a year and more partnership and went to a place that was losing money and nobody had ever heard of. E! News, no one actually, like in the 90s, they weren't even recognizable whatsoever. Oh, I, right? I, no I didn't one even... have them on my television set. So yeah, they were in 13 yeah. million homes. In fact, I, I, I walked around the law firm quitting. Everybody's incredibly surprised because <laughs> you know doing quite well. Uh, and, and kind of seemed like that guy who would be a lifer, right? And I go to these crappy offices in this scary part of uh, West Hollywood, you know, where everything <laughs> is like junkies everywhere and we have to like walk people to their cars. There's 150th employee at E. And the second day, we have a board meeting. And we were owned by the five largest uh, cable operators at the time, headed up by Time Warner. So the head of HBO, a man named Jeff Bukas, who's the chairman of HBO, was, our, uh, was the chairman of our board, a real amazing uh, guy and a real uh, business mentor to me. And uh, I sit down in this meeting and I'm the, tra- I'm the secretary of the meeting. And the whole discussion is whether they're going to shut this thing down or keep funding it because it's lost like $110 million at that point. And I remember turning to the guy who hired me, uh, who to this day is one of my, one of my closest friends. And I'm like, you know, could have shared this information with me like two days ago before I leave my job, walked away from all my salary and bonus. <clears throat> but like a lot, of, I think of risks, it turned out to be, you know, one of the best things I've ever done because we went from that to build this global entertainment brand that people have heard of to build networks um, all over the world. Um, you know, I got really into, and that sustained me through the rest of my career, you know, real experience as an international executive running businesses around the world. Um, and I was very fortunate in my career that a very short period of time, I went from being sort of the second attorney at, at E uh, to running the joint. And, and we had a really great, for me, about a 10-year run. I, I just want to make sure that you're not downplaying anything because when it came to E! News Entertainment, especially in the 90s, that was like channel, it wasn't even on a channel. It was like channel like 75 or something like that, right? And and it actually, with E! News Entertainment, it almost like had a renaissance period where it actually turned, where it went through almost like a decade of turning into one of the biggest uh, entertainment channels in the world. And you were actually CEO for much of that, uh, much of that growth right there. Yeah. We, we How did you guys that. do that? So, so there's sort of like, you can sort of break E up into these different periods. I was part of that first real growth period with shows you might recognize like uh, Talk Soup, obviously E-News Daily, but, you know, some things that really put us on the map were things that, you know, aren't really necessarily things you would look at in a sense of sort of creative pride, but they were uh, very successful at brand building and audience building. Like we put Howard Stern on the network and, you know, did that show. That was a very uh, successful and complicated undertaking. Uh, But so how do we do it? I would say, the real key to how we did it, aside from all the other business principles we could talk about forever, but but from a from the core strategy for E, I think um, we were really smart about the brand identity mm. from what 
So we told the world early on, we were the entertainment news and information source, like the world's mm-hmm. greatest. And, and we showed up at all the red carpet things for the, and got footage of celebrities and we'd get them to say into the camera, oh, you're watching E or whatever. And then we would just use that like crazy in promos. So to the world, it seemed like we were this place that all the celebrities hung out and they loved it and they told us all their inside stuff so we could report it on the news, blah, blah, blah. And the only show we had that fulfilled that was this one money losing show, E! News Daily. So a half hour yeah. news show, sometimes it was an hour, you know, that costs us a lot to make um, because you make it every day and then you throw it away, right? There's mm-hmm. no library value to it. But that's really all we did to fulfill this branding promise we made of how cool and hip and entertaining we were. The rest of the network was very inexpensive programming that we did in really high volumes and most of it that we could use in the library over and over and over. So everything from licensing Smothers Brothers reruns that have mm-hmm. nothing to do with that to you know movie clip shows and things like Talk Soup where we got free clips from all the talk shows. Um, you know we made that for a few thousand bucks a half hour. Um, but then they went in the library and you know all that. And so we were just like very strategic. Like let's build a brand, and then once we're making enough money we can kind of really fulfill the promise of the brand. We'll do just enough to make it, you know, pass the red face test. Mm. But our real mission here is we got to build value. We got to make money, you know, build an audience. And then we can kind of grow into fulfilling the brand promise. Um, And we did that. And, you know, and we're always very, very disciplined about our spending and our allocation of capital and um, how we managed our overhead and all that. You know, we produced, we did not get into this business of, hiring outside companies as most people do and pretty much everyone does in entertainment and having someone else make your shows and you really just kind of license them. We built our own studios in our own building. Um, and we came up with our own ideas. We developed our own ideas. We shot our own shows with employees rather than, you know, being fully infected with the unionization and all that stuff. Um, and then we owned it instead of somebody else owning it. And so we had the same people who were like shooting you news daily, the cameramen and the sound people and, you know, the makeup people, all that other people. Then when we were done shooting that, they just turned over here to the next side and they shot, you know, talk soon. Wasn't all these different production companies and it was right in our building. So we really kind of pioneered a model of, of being able to produce decent quality at a very low cost. So those, I think, were sort of the really key secrets to building a, a global brand for E. Yeah, and and I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but then uh, there was this uh, transition from uh, being the CEO of E News, and then now you are the CEO of uh, the Game Show Network. Yeah, which is a pretty big network, actually. It's uh, it's fairly up there. So, how exactly, like, if you can kind of consolidate how you made that jump, and then also. How exactly did you enter into the game show network, and what are the what was kind of like the growth strategy behind that? What are you trying to do with uh, that particular business? Well, so that's one of the stories where, like, sometimes you know you're dead wrong, and it's the best thing you can. <laughs> so uh, after E, I had a couple of different CEO jobs, um, some in the technology space, which was really helpful. Uh, something called digital asset management. Mm-hmm. Which in the world of the now of of, um, at, of of the internet and everything is digitally everything is digital in some way or another. That was a really great education in uh, some really key aspects uh, that have helped me along the way. I built and grew for a company called Univision and Televisa, 
uh, a big business in the Spanish language television space. But then, uh, so I was at Univision and had built this business for them and then uh, had become the president of uh, consumer products and all their sort of like new brand extension stuff. So I was one of five president employees at, at Univision. Uh, during the period in uh, 2008, when we were selling that business and Univision was, uh, there's this period uh, uh, who your older listeners will be familiar with when sort of the M&A bubble uh, using, you know, highly leveraged deals um, kind of grew to this extreme expansion. And Univision was the last deal to get done in that bubble. And two weeks after our deal got done, the world collapsed. And that's when the 2008 financial crisis hit. Had, had we not sold in those, at that moment, we waited just a few days, the deal would have never gotten done. The good news about that deal is that we sold this company at a really high valuation. I wasn't an owner, but I worked for, for the guy who owned it. And, but I recognized that it was grossly overvalued and I didn't buy into the story we'd sold it on. So when I was offered a, a really, well, what would look like a great opportunity with the company going forward, I declined because I, I knew that all the equity they were giving me, and at a certain point in your life, you're a lot more interested in your equity than your salary, mm. uh, if, if things go right, was going to be worthless. Mm. I, I knew we'd have to write it all down. And in fact, wow. they did write all the equity down to zero. And I didn't want to invest my time and my personal professional capital in something I didn't believe in. Yeah. It just so happened that, and I'd been a CEO for many years at that point, uh, a good friend of mine, a person who I really admired, who I chased some deals with, and who is the kind of intellect that, to me, when they give you an opportunity to do something, you don't ask what, you just ask when. Mm. Like, I knew I could learn a lot from, from this guy, even, even though I was you know, a full-grown adult in my 40s at the time. And he was going to Game Show Network. And Game Show Network, well-known in the TV industry at that point, had been around for 14 years and really gone nowhere. And it was wildly underperforming, didn't make much money. It was kind of a joke in the industry. Mm. And I met with him. We actually had a, a Knicks game in New York. <laughs> he, had, he had Knicks tickets. And he said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this Game Show Network thing. I'm like, oh my God, why would you do that? And he said, well, you know, they've got a little bit of cash flow. They've got this, you know, nice core audience. You know, we'll probably do something with that. I'm like, yeah, I think you can watch it go to zero. I don't get it, you know? <laughs> uh, and so I said, no. Then a few weeks later, we were in Los Angeles and we had lunch and he said, you know, one of the owners, a company called Liberty Media, has this little gaming business and it's games you play on your computer and you can play for money and, you know, maybe we can mush that and the game show network together and maybe there's something there. Mm. Like, yeah, I, I don't get it. Um, <laughs> mush what together? What's his gaming business? So I said, no, a second time. That, right after that is when we actually sold Univision. And he asked me again if I wanted to join him there. And I didn't have a job and I sold Univision. So I'm like, all right, I don't get it, but <laughs> sure, I get to work with this guy and maybe I'll learn something, right? Well, yeah. as I said, I was completely wrong. So, mm. you know, we, we go into this really underperforming asset. It was me, him, and one other guy. He was the CEO. I was kind of the head of strategy. I also took on the general counsel role because I have a law degree. Then the other guy was kind of the head of finance and admin. You know, we just kind of set to work, banging away at this thing. So that's how I got there. I got there not by like my having this vision of what it could be. And we set to work banging away at this thing. We were building this games business and 
building the TV network and being a lot more smart and strategic and bringing all of our experience to these things. At the same time that this sort of online and then ultimately mobile games mm-hmm. world has started to really explode. So our timing was good there. And, you know, it was really successful. And after a certain period of time, uh, he left and I became the CEO. Um, you know, we kind of took a business that was, you know, probably I think our valuation when I started was around 150 million or something like that. You know, and we're probably pretty close to a $2 billion business today. So it's been a really good run. It's, you know, kind of in my wheelhouse where, where we're really focused on, on a high volume of relatively low cost uh, content. Yeah. Really focused on efficiency and we have a global workforce, as you mentioned, that while very difficult to manage in certain ways, um, allows us to, to do things um, uh, at a hyper efficient uh, and a hyper fast uh, pace. So, you know, kind of like with E, I don't think I really knew exactly what I was getting into, but in, in this case, it really worked out. You know, there, there have been things along the way we haven't talked about, which certainly didn't work out. But, um, you know, this is this is one that's been really, uh, really terrific and fun. Well, I remember reading about kind of um, your process in building the game show network. And one of the things that impressed me the most was the fact that you actually understood your core audience, even though you may have went into it and you're just like, I don't get it, but we're going to figure it out. You you went into it and you actually went foundational and you're like, okay, so here are our core guys. These, these are guys that actually watch us. And someone's like, do you ever think about branching out? Do you ever think about uh, getting a new audience? And you were like, no, we're going to find more of these people. Mm-hmm. Right, you're actually doubling down on the current core audience that was already watching the game show network, and I think that I think that is essentially what contributed to the to the growth of the company from what you said, like 120 million or 150 million to like two billion right now. Like, what was it in you that that wanted to double down on on the core audience so much rather than seek out all these new avenues that most companies do when it comes to making money and, and getting a new I guess you could say getting new eyes on the product. Well, you're right about sort of what has really led to our most recent um, sort of uh, several years of growth. And, you know, I, I, uh, for better or worse, I had a few years there where I wasn't the ultimate decision maker, um, which was a new role for me, where I got to watch someone else. So I got to think about it a lot. I had a lot of time to, you know, do everything I could to contribute, but at the same time, um, think a lot about, well, okay, you know, what do I really believe? And that insight really came from just paying really close attention to what was happening in um, the linear television industry. And you probably know that a lot of cable networks, you know, that built a lot of value and grew really big, at some point, including Game Show Network, all tried to become general entertainment networks because you realize that, you know, you want to get as big an audience as you can. You particularly want to try to get young male viewers because they're the ones that advertisers want the most and all that. So, you know, Turner Classic Movies becomes TCM. So mm. it can be it wants to be, mm. right? Game Show Network becomes GSN. Mm. So it can kind of be anything that it wants to be. You know, Arts and Entertainment Network becomes just A&E. And everyone tries to go into, you know, shows that, that aren't within a brand definition, but rather trying to get as large an audience as possible. And there was a period while I was there where, where GSM was doing the same thing. When I really looked at it and I saw what we were doing, I realized we were spending a lot of money on big, expensive shows that would attract a new audience for an hour. But 
the kind of investment we would require to create an entire network of that was not within our reach. So we would bring people in for a big competition reality show. We did a great show called Skin Wars, which was fun and sexy. It was body painting competition. You know, so there was kind of fake nudity on it and, mm-hmm. and interesting people competing because you got to be a pretty creative, wild personality to devote your life to body art. And so, you know, in prime time at eight o'clock, uh, all the audience that was a game show network watching Family Feud reruns and match game reruns would Skin Wars would come on and they'd all leave because none of them mm-hmm. were in Skin Wars. Uh, this really great big new audience would come in for an hour of Skin Wars. Then when Skin Wars was over, we kind of had to go right back to Family Feud because you just couldn't afford to make that many Skin Wars. These are really expensive shows to make. And it would take us an hour or two to get that audience back. And I realized that, the, and, and it doesn't, at the end of the day, the, the numbers just don't pencil out, right? And at the same time, you know, the internet is growing, Google and Apple and everyone else are increasing these logarithms to be able to market to very, very small slices of, of uh, communities of interest. And I realized the world is sort of atomizing, right? Mm-hmm. And unless you're um, the NFL or the Oscars or, you know, a multi-million dollar scripted drama, the idea of being a general audience thing is unattainable. But there's more and more value in finding, you know, a niche audience, super serving them, and advertisers value that, value that too. You know, Tim Ferriss has written about and talked a lot about, you know, you just need a thousand passionate advocates. And they also become your marketing force, right? If you, if you really focus on people who love you, they market you. So when I got the opportunity to take over, I thought, you know, we're going to stop trying to be everything to everybody. We're going to re- go back to our Game Show Network name. I literally changed the name from GSM back to Game Show Network. And we're going to focus on what we can do really well for this audience um, but that also meant doing something that I thought would create longer term value for us. So instead of making 10 episodes of a show that costs a million bucks an episode to make, and that's, we can only make two or three of those in a year. So you're making a grand total of 30 hours. We're going to, since we know our audience loves game shows, we know they actually love a certain type of game show. We're going to develop those like crazy. We're going to build what I call the game show factory. Good <laughs> ideas are going to start at one end. Great shows are going to come out the other side and we're going to do it quicker and cheaper and at higher quality than anyone else can do. And my audience, every time they turn on their TV, they're going to want to just leave it on because they're going to be constantly surprised and delighted by great new fresh content that's right in the wheelhouse that they want. I'm going to make it in a way that no matter who comes in or out of the room, they're going to be comfortable. It's always going to be family friendly. It's going to be upbeat. I'm going to make sure that uh, if you're, you know, in your home and you got to turn and take care of your kids or cook dinner or whatever, then you're never going to get lost, right? So you don't have to stare at the screen the whole time. If you're just hearing it or you're just seeing it or you even miss a few seconds, as soon as you turn back to it, you'll know exactly where you are. Yeah. So all these things kind of like informed our programming decisions. And we just went to work on that. Wow. We brought the cost per half hour way, way down. Mm. We created a few... In our own house, we created a few hit shows that, you know, really, really work. And we've made hundreds and hundreds of episodes of. And we went from making, you know, around 60 to 100 of hours of television a year to making, you know, 800 yeah. hours of television a year. At a much yeah. This is mind-blowing because you're doing, it's almost, it seems like you're doing two things, right? It's like, number one, you are actually getting more of your core audience 
and you're actually attuning to the frequency that they're actually trying to trying to uh, listen to or trying to watch in terms of entertainment value. At the same time, you're driving up profitability because you are spending less money on actual production of shows, spending more on putting out the quantity of shows that people actually want to see. It's almost like you did like a double whammy in terms of uh, in terms of growing that particular company. And and I was I actually was having this conversation with a friend and it's like, you know, like the Beatles and Michael Jackson and how they almost they almost surpassed all lines and all boundaries. We don't think in the age of the internet that's going to happen anymore. We actually think that it is going to be more hyper niche towards the particular person. You know, there's going to be particular personality type that a game show network or a let's just say for me, like a person who is you know, uh, let's just say marketing on Twitter or, you know, going on social media, there's going to be a very certain personality type that we are going to attach ourselves to. We're not going to be everything to everyone, but we are going to focus on our core audience and speak to them and then focus on growth in that aspect. And that's actually one way you can grow almost exponentially, but also grow in a way that you can profit off of as well. Right. It's like when people, when people think about niche products, they're actually willing to spend actually spend more and also spend more time because it's directed towards them as opposed to trying to be everything to everyone else. I think you guys, I think that was like freaking brilliant, man. You know, well, super brilliant. Well, then I think you're complimenting yourself because it's why we yeah. kind of why I found you and why we connected, right? Because you're yeah. doing something very similar. So I do a lot of reading and follow a lot of folks who, particularly because of our games business, um, you know, which we haven't talked a lot about, but which is much more technology driven and a lot younger people who are a lot more entrepreneurial. So I'm doing a lot of reading in sort of the entrepreneurial world and following those people, you know, on, on Twitter and other sources, you know, and when I decided I really wanted to focus on this fitness journey, you know, I found you because you focus on a really particular, particular niche. Now your niche isn't necessarily, you know, middle-aged corporate drones like me, you know, it's just more entrepreneurial thing. But since I'm, since I follow those circles, right. Yes. Somehow or another, I was able to find your name and I, and that was because, you know, that small world that you focus on is a small world in which I'm interested. So it's kind of the perfect connection. So we're really doing the same thing, like know what you are, know what you're really good at and do more of that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Double down, double down on that. You're great at do it. Yeah. And, 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 no one's going to recreate the NFL. We're not going to do. We're not going to do. You know, multi hundred million dollar events anymore. Very much. I mean, audience member. You know, events anymore. Yeah. But you can you can make a really really good business by really serving people who care about what you do really really well. Yeah. So you're kind of doing the same thing, to be honest. Yeah, I appreciate that, and I would actually say that. You are not a corporate drone, uh, for sure. Uh, you are definitely the, the opposite of a corporate drone. Are you enjoying the show thus far? We go through so many resources and links with the podcast, it's tough to keep up. I get it. That's why Dan and the rest of the team put together the High Performance 7. It's a free online course that helps entrepreneurs get lean, build muscle, and increase energy in a way that fits their lifestyle. We go over things like how to burn fat like a 20-year-old, the lazy man's way to building muscle, the 10-minute Superman system, the lead domino that makes all other things easy, and so much more. The best part? As a valued listener of the show, 
you can access the High Performance 7 100% free of charge. That's right, for simply being awesome and tuning in. To get full access, all you have to do is go to www.highperformance7.com. It's high performance, all spelled out, and the number 7.com. And fill out the short form there for us to give you full access. Once again, www.highperformance7.com. Now, back to the show. Let's actually get a little bit into the personal side because I, I did. I, you actually mentioned one thing that you were you had dealt with weight issues your entire life. I know that you played uh, water polo, not professionally, but you know, somewhat in in a uh, academic sense. You know, in high school, I think in college as well. Was that uh, were you actually in college, but not in high school? So okay, I college, been, uh, not in high school. Okay. I've been a swimmer when I was young, yeah. um, in part because swimming happens at you know five or six a.m. Yeah. And since just the way my life was, uh, I had to be in Hebrew school after my regular school most days. <laughs> oh, so it wasn't really feasible for me to be, you know, on the football team or anything like that. But, you know, I could get out of bed bright and early and go hit swim practice uh, before the rest of the day started. Um, and then I stopped swimming, you know, I don't know, it was probably 14 or 15, something like that. Um, but when I was in college at a small division three, super kind of academic place, and I was a qualified as a lifeguard. So I was working and one of the other lifeguards who was on the water polo team. He said, you know, you're a really good swimmer. And I know you play a lot of sports. You love to play basketball and all this other stuff. You know, we always need more people. You should, you should come out for the water polo team. I've never played water polo. You know, I'm in college and I played. And he said, well, and it was in the summer. And he said, well, let's get to work. So I actually spent the summer with this guy just training and learning water polo. I went out for the team, you know, and I became, uh, a really crappy division three water polo player, <laughs> but I had a lot of fun and, you know, got, got a lot of exercise in and got to be a part of the team. And, you know, by the end, by my senior year I was a starter, but you know, not the best player on the team by any means, but, yeah. but yeah, so I played and, and that swimming thing has stayed with me for my life. Yeah. And, and like, uh, we, again, you know, bring it back. We've been working together for six months. I, you know, you're, you're in incredible shape right now. Uh, we'll talk about this in about two seconds, but like, how exactly were you performing back when you're in water polo shape? Because I know that you've been dealing with weight issues. Uh, was that, did that actually carry on when you were playing athletically for D3 in water polo? Yeah, I did. I was never, uh, you know, so I wasn't, I wasn't like a really heavy guy then. I was bigger than I am now and I carried a lot of muscle, um, you know, and, and the position that I played was one that required a lot of muscle. So I played, you know, around 200 to 210 pounds, with a lot more muscle than I have now. But I was always a little pudgy. Yeah. And and even though, you know, I was in really, really good overall shape in, in a lot of ways, you know, I think it's fair to say I was kind of fit back yeah. uh, to the extent there is such a thing. And the problem always being, you know, I think around eating and and control of that. And I got particularly out of shape out of season, you know, and then it was really <laughs> hard work to get in shape, you know, for, for the season. Yeah. Um, you know, you do two a days and all this stuff. I remember my senior year, it's actually really sad uh, that I really remember the day that we were tapering because you, you sort of, you know, when you're in college athletics, you do this thing where you work your tail off. And then there's a moment where, where the coach really tapers your, your workouts so that when you hit the part of the season that really matters, right, you're just hitting on all cylinders and you're as, as fit and strong as you can possibly be and you're not tired. 
And I remember hitting that taper uh, and we were, you know, we, we had just beaten, um, you know, shocking turn of events. We had just played UCLA and beaten them. So we were all in this high. Oh. And I remember, I remember thinking, remember thinking in the, in the van coming back, uh, wow, this is it. Like, I will never be this fit again in my <laughs> life. It's literally all downhill for me. Oh, shit. I'm like 22 years old, um, playing water polo. I'm yeah. fully tapered. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> now, whatever happens the rest of my life, I will never be like this again. And that sadly turned out to be quite true. But, oh, yeah, but yes, I did that. Prophecy. Yeah. I definitely battled it then. Yeah. And um, I, I wish I wish I'd been more aware of it. Yeah. And, and what what caused you to reach out in the first place? Uh, you know, I, I know where we're starting from for sure. Yeah. You know, what was the trigger for you that said, hey, what's up? Uh, I got to do something about this. Uh, if I don't, uh, then it could turn into something even worse. Uh, so yeah. what was that for you? I'll be honest. It was part of sort of a larger, maybe it's a midlife crisis or something like that, but it was sort of a larger overall thought process yeah. that happened during COVID. So we're mm. in COVID you know, an enormous amount of challenges in COVID. And like everyone, I spent the first several months of COVID, uh, or like most people, you know, self-soothing a lot. Yeah. It's sort of this weird self-pitying thing that I, I don't look back on and like, and it's not what I would normally do. You know, we're all allowing ourselves to drink more often than we should, and we're eating too much. And it's all like, well, you know, this is also horrible. This is the way we're all making ourselves feel better. So everyone gave themselves permission. And everyone in the world got fat and and we're still there. Yeah. And I got, and to be honest, but, but at the same time within my family, my daughter who's in college came home. My other two who were in high school at the time, you know, we're both here. So we're all locked down together. And this really wonderful thing happened within the family, which is that we all got much, 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 much closer. And, you know, you would think all that time locked down together would, would make you want to kill one another. You know, for us, it was kind of a thing where, we started having dinner together every single night. And then we'd look up and it's an hour and a half past dinner and we're still sitting at the table chatting or playing cards or whatever. You know, and it was a really great thing for the family. And it just hit me at some point with that, I was reflecting on that. I might have even been telling somebody about how great it was for the family. It struck me like, wait a minute, if COVID and this lockdown creates this opportunity for something really good to happen, why aren't I looking at this whole experience of COVID as... I do with business, which is how can I use this to my advantage? Like, mm. what does this give me the opportunity to do that I normally wouldn't? And I just I had this lightning bolt moment where I thought about that. And I said, you know, okay, here's what I can focus on. I can, I can actually, rather than self-soothing all the time, I don't have to go to restaurants. I don't have to, you know, put anything in my mouth that I wouldn't, wouldn't want to. I have a lot as, as well, my days are still really long. I actually have more control over it than I would if people could just walk in my office door and, you know, things like that. And that's what kind of started me thinking about, well, one of the things I can really, really focus on is my health and fitness. And, you know, I'm at an age where I'd really like to be healthy and a lot happier for however many years I have remaining, you know, and it was kind of that light bulb going off. And so I started doing the research and I started looking, you know, and I knew I was, Aside from the COVID thing making me unhealthy, I knew that the fitness stuff I was doing just had realized I'm just spinning my wheels. Yeah. I'm working out a whole lot and then I'm ruining it with eating. I'm not doing progressive overload and I'm just staying in the same place or getting a little fatter. So I was unhappy with how I felt and, and saw the opportunity and decided, you know what? This is what you should do with COVID. You shouldn't self-soothe. You should use it. 
for what it offers to them to. Never let a good crisis go to waste, as they would say, right? And exactly, uh, exactly. dude, I totally identify with it, everything you said because when COVID hit, uh, I was self-soothing, self-soothing, and I was just like, "Oh my god, what the heck is going to happen? The world is going to go to shit." And, you know, you, you just get all these kind of like just these negative thoughts, and then there has to be a point in time where you're like, "Okay, well, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait." In every single horrible situation in my life, uh, whatever it was. I've always been able to use it to my advantage. I've always been able to take this as an opportunity for more growth in whatever way. So it's funny for me because I remember COVID was the first time I was actually scared about my own business. And I was just like, oh my God, like no one's like three people had dropped off because, you know, whatever. And, and, and I was just like, what is going to happen? And I was like, wait, 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 wait. Okay, 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 okay. Chill. Like this is called, this is called adaption right now. What can we do to make the situation? And turn it to our advantage. That's actually when I turned to Twitter. That's actually when I got on Twitter in the first place. And if it wasn't for me kind of like shifting my direction and putting, I guess you could say, my my mental focus into something that I felt could actually enhance my longer-term growth and my longer-term goals, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. You know, and 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 whoever's listening to this right now is like, whenever you hit a a crisis or a traumatic event. Whatever it is, it could be like the worst thing that's ever happened to you. That is an opportunity. That is an incredible opportunity for strength, for growth, and for actually making changes in your life. And uh, and it takes a certain, I won't say it takes a certain person, but it takes a certain perception for someone to be able to see that and actually do that to their lives. So we've been working together. You know, you've been one of, I'll say like one of my favorite guys to work with because literally i tell you something and you're like done and then when i say when we celebrate a milestone you have this line that i just love and the the, the line is all right cool day one starts today every single time you say that i am just like fuck yes this guy gets it like he actually gets it so you know the experience of almost a lifetime of being out of shape uh, having no control over your eating uh, over the past six months, uh, you've gotten some incredible results. I'd love for you to say, uh, you know, what kind of things you've accomplished. But I've also, I also want to know exactly what are the side benefits of changing your physical state. You know, what are the other benefits that you get from changing your physical state? So I'll ask you two things. One, what exactly did we do? What results did you get? Um, and the next one would be how exactly. Uh, did that change your life in a non-physical way? So first off, thank you for the very the very kind words. Uh, since I tend to be a little harsh on myself, I will say my my reaction, well, gratitude for you saying that is, you know, why did it take me so many years to get there and figure <laughs> a lot of stuff out? Um, but yeah, as, as you know, so when I came to you, I, mean, I weighed in at 212 pounds. I'm five foot uh, 10 and a half, um, or what we call a Jewish six feet. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, so I weighed 212 and my body fat was just over 30%. And I was full of ailments on, you know, a blood pressure and cholesterol medication. Um, and, you know, constantly battling because I did a, what exercise I did do tended to be these different hit classes, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of cross training, hit, hit type classes. And I was always sore in some way or another or injured or, or whatever. 
And uh, so in the in the six months, uh, you know, the big bulk of it, probably in the first four months or so, uh, big transition. Today I'm at 175. Um, I think my body fat's at 17. Is that right? 17.4%. percent um, body fat. I feel, you know, terrific. And, you know, aches and pains are the exception rather than the, the <laughs> rule now. Um, and I do still swim a lot. Um, and while I'm not in the same competitive group I was in before, because they've been shut for COVID, you know, I know from my own workouts, which are just not part of my Dan Go schedule, mm-hmm. which is something I do for, for myself. I know that my performance in the pool, which matters a lot to me, and I measure and track everything, you know, has improved, uh, improved dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. What, what has changed in my life for psychology? I think the the biggest change for me, I would say number one is the um, actually allowing myself to be mentally happier with myself, mm-hmm. which leads to a greater level of happiness in your life. So mm-hmm. I feel like a better dad who's modeling things better for, for my family. I've always talked the talk, but now I feel like I'm walking the walk. I don't want to pass on to my children mm-hmm. um, any of the genetic and cultural negativity that, that infused my life. So it's very satisfying to feel like I'm doing a better, a better job of that. I want to demonstrate to my wife every day that, um, you know, that my being there for her and for the family for as long and as effectively as I possibly can is a priority to me. When you're walking around and you're a fat swab, you're not demonstrating, you know, demonstrating that. Um, I want to be able to be happier on a day-to-day basis because who wants to be in a house with someone who isn't that way? And I'll say even my employees, you know, who number the many, many hundreds, you know, all around the world, but the feedback I've gotten from my direct report um, group of employees without asking for it has just been just a general recognition, not so much of my fitness, but really of my positivity, mm. happiness. So I would put at number one, just a sort of a mental shift to feeling better about myself and proud of it. I think number two is, you know, simple vanity, right? Like, mm. but, but there is something that's very nice. Um, I'm not usually selfish about things this way. But it's nice to feel like if I'm walking on the beach you know, near my home, I can take my shirt off and get some sun and not be embarrassed by even be maybe even a tiny bit proud, you know, um, <laughs> of it. <laughs> not usually, but, you know. Um, I'd say very proud, man. Like, I um, look at your body and just like, there's no, I, I, don't, I hope you don't mind. There's no, like, person in their mid-50s that is looking like you. If there are, they're a freaking anomaly, Okay. They are a freaking anomaly. And anyways, you know, we, we've always talked about this. Like, you know, we, for, for we're always hardest on ourselves. I am a, a silverback gorilla in build with a very large <laughs> upper body, oddly long arms and very tiny legs. Yeah. And butt. But uh, do, I'm doing the most I can with that genetic. That's a perfect water polo right there, right? That's like yeah. a perfect water polo physique. Huge. Yeah, it is fortunate. I have a lot of, a lot of leverage in those uh, long yeah. So th- I would say those are sort of, you know, number one and, and, and two in terms of changes, you know, um, and then, you know, the last is just the, once you hit a certain level, um, you don't want to give it up and I don't want to go back on, I would say I'm off the medication and, and I don't ever want to go back on it. You know, my numbers are, are crazy good when I look at my heart rate and, you know, all of the blood markers and stuff like that. 
you know, it's sort of self-reinforcing, right? You don't want to, you don't want to go, go the other, the other direction, but you know, I am just fundamentally healthier and I'm not sitting there feeling like I have a clock ticking on me because all the men, again, all the, I'm, I'm not far from the age where all the men in my family usually yeah. and their, their lives come to an end, you mm-hmm. know, including my own father and uh, grandparents and uncles and all that stuff. Um, so that, that is, you know, obviously really, 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 um, just, uh, uh, critically, critically important, but I, but I will say, uh, and when I've actually been, you know, doing some studying and listening to stuff because the real challenge is I can't allow myself to be satisfied here, which is, I think where people hit that three month or six month thing and start to turn it back around, yes. which I've done in my life. Um, you know, what I need, uh, and what I've learned working with you in part and what that day one focus is for me is that, you know, I'm a guy who needs to constantly have goals and I need mm-hmm. to be, you know, rowing towards something. I, I don't think I'm a guy who can just maintain without slipping. Um, yeah. so for me, it's about, okay, what's the next goal and let me get obsessive and really focused on that goal. Cause I'm just not good at just kind of maintaining. I, I all, need to all of us, man, all of us are like that. And I wish more people actually knew that because the brain is like literally a goal seeking me- mechanism. And if we don't give the brain anything to attach itself to, then it's just going to flounder. It is going to move more into pleasure. It's going to move more. And any time someone says that they want to maintain where they're at, that is like, not, for me and my brain, I'm like, 99% this guy's going back to where he was before. Anytime someone says that. Because, because again, the brain doesn't really work like that. The brain needs a goal. Uh, it needs a goal for physical, for career, for the family. It needs something to actually work towards or else uh, left to its own devices, you don't necessarily want to do that. You know, so, you know, for for you, when I look at uh, your particular transformation, it has been eye-opening for myself because we have actually done things with your body that a lot of people would actually say is not possible at your age. We have actually, like, Okay, so we've dropped. Uh, for, we went from like thirty percent to seventeen point four percent body fat. We've done all the tests on the DEXA, so we know it's true. Your android fat, which is your belly fat area, it actually went down to ooh, around like twenty percent. Twenty percent. We reduced your visceral adipose tissue from like two point six eight pounds uh, down to 0.74 pounds. And visceral adipose tissue, if, if no one knows, it's the most active and dangerous fat there is. So actually, the last thing that people would actually say would not be able to happen is that, number one, we've been losing all this weight. We've been dropping your body fat. But at the same time, you have been gaining muscle. You have actually been gaining lean mass. You've actually gained about six pounds of lean mass while being in this deficit and dropping body fat. So, so literally, we have almost like done the holy grail of, of what people would call body transformation and it's almost like we reversed your age by a factor of like a decade or so. And the really cool thing about this that I notice is that it's actually trickling down to your family. So I'm not exactly sure what's happening with your daughters right now, but I know for a fact, like your wife, your wife is like in the best shape of her life. Like she's ever been, you know, and she's feeling like the feel good benefits of, of being that way. And it's almost like she's following your example. Right, you are setting the standard for your family, and that's what a lot of dads don't realize. It's like you are the first example of what 
of what life should be actually lived, of what a healthy human being should be. And if they don't get that example from their parents, who are they going to get that example from? So I just want to commend you, man. Like, again, you're, you're not a type to take like compliments, so I'm not going to do it too much. But dude, you have done uh, a service not just for yourself, but also for your family. Now, if you were talking to another CEO or another founder, and they have essentially let their business kind of like take over their bodies, you know, what exactly would you say to them, you know, in regards to getting their getting themselves back in shape? And actually, I would say this, like, when you're doing this entire program, I know that you're listening to the coaching, I know you're listening to me, and you're being very coachable. Uh, what was the tricks or what was the tactics that we used that that kind of made the most sense to you? that actually moved the needle the most for you and that helped you become the healthiest version of yourself? Well, so learning to trust you. So you really got to listen to Dan. And even when things seem counterintuitive um, and sometimes, you know, frustrating and slow, know what you don't know. Um, you know put your ego aside and, you know, follow the plan. And that's why we were able to get the results that, you know, that we got. And, you know, as, as you know, we had plenty of, of moments where I was your worst nightmare because I'm like, you know, Dan, the scale's not moving. It's been a yeah. week and a half. Yeah. I'm hungry as crap all the time. I'm working my tail off, you know, in the in yeah. the gym, you know, and it's not moving. And you're like, yeah. dude, trust me, it's working. It's like, hey, calm down. You know, I do want you to weigh yourself every day. Don't obsess yeah. this way. You gotta, you gotta trust me. And of yeah. course, you were you were right. And I had to put that aside because I was used to the worst kind of weight loss, which is you just starve yourself and lose a bunch of fat and muscle, you know, very, very quickly. And then you put it all back, put it all back on again, and you haven't improved your body comp at all. In fact, you probably made it worse. So trusting you, listening and believing in the process, which is, by the way, I will tell everyone, I don't just listen to Dan. I've been doing a crap load of research and I've been, uh, one of the things I've done, you know, with my time where I'm exercising and stuff like that is listening to audio books in addition to all the reading I do. I will tell you everything that Dan is is teaching and is preaching is the absolute cutting edge of what nutrition and fitness science is today. And it's not maybe it's not you know here's a new you know thing we're going to try. It's actually what the science is telling us works. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and what you're doing, I, I now know I didn't know before. You know, is entirely grounded in the absolute truth. So yeah. also follow it. So that's that's you know yeah. critical is that that just humility, honestly, and trust yeah. um, with somebody who actually knows better than, than I do um, the subject matter and, and doing it. Yeah, man. So, and, uh, and you're completely coachable too. Again, I say that over and over. It's like, I, I think from your water polo background and from the way that you've been trained and just like your overall kind of uh, personal philosophy as well, it's like you, you literally actually, so the funny thing is, is that you listen and you research. Right. It's like you listen and then you do the read and you're like, okay, so he's telling me to do this. Okay. Let me, let me back, let me, let me backtrack this and let me check things, some things with Dan and let me put some things uh, towards him. And, and I really do appreciate that. It, it keeps me on my toes, but it also makes me understand that you actually are taking your health in a very serious way, mm-hmm. in a very serious way. So I just want to commend you. And I know that we're, we're reaching the, the, the inth uh, kind of like time right here. So Mark, Dude, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to this interview. Uh, definitely, if uh, if anyone, um, I don't know, you don't really have a blog or anything like that. You're just running business, and you're just freaking, you know, like 
I'm a, I have to say, this is very unusual for me. I'm a very private person. Um, yeah. Needless to say, you know, in the business world, I get an awful lot of uh, flattering invitations to speak on panels and do things I generally don't, um, both because I'm a private person. I'm not, you know, of the generation that, that lives their lives online, yeah. but also uh, I'm also kind of old school in that I don't really need to go to industry conferences other than that stuff like that and tell everyone, yeah. tell all my competitors how we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't want to keep it a little closer to the best, you know, for the most part. Yeah, um, yeah. But I will say for you, uh, I'm so grateful that yeah. your very targeted marketing and my research mm-hmm. cross paths and that we found one another. And um, it honestly has been really transformational for my life. It's not just the physical, as I said, you know, the emotional and mental part of it. Uh, has been a real boon um, for me, but more importantly for the people around me and the people that I care about and I love. So uh, extremely grateful for you and really excited that today is day one as a power to <laughs> the next set of goals. Right? Fuck yeah, man. Fuck yeah. Today is day one. And uh, yeah, well, we, we, have some, we have some pretty big goals that we have set for ourselves for this year. So uh, we're just going to get back to it. And uh, for everyone listening, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Mark is a powerhouse and uh, he doesn't have a blog. He doesn't go speak. But uh, I would, I, I mean, like, I would just like look, in a, look him up on Google and you can actually find a lot of his personal philosophy and in the very minuscule interviews that he's actually done <laughs> out there. Uh, but in general, Mark, thank you so much, man. I love you as a human being. And, uh, and it's been a pleasure just to work with you and also your family. So, uh, so thank you very much, man. And, I uh, yeah. that, Dan. and if anyone does want to reach out to me, yeah. uh, whether it's through your Twitter and direct, direct messaging me or on LinkedIn or something like that and have any questions or anything like that, I'm, I'm more than happy to connect with people. Directly. Absolutely. All right, guys. Thank you so much, Mark. We appreciate it. Have Thanks. a good one. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit subscribe on whichever platform you're tuning in from. Help Dan and the rest of the team get the word out to more entrepreneurs like yourself and leave an honest review for the show. It would mean the world to us if you can help in those two ways. Dan reviews all the feedback on the show, so we can't wait to hear what you've got for us. This show is made for your benefit, so be sure to reach out if you have any ideas on topics that we can cover on the show or people we should interview. You're listening to the High Performance Founder Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time.